Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. We on that haunted ground. The three spooked girls. Hey there, spooksters, and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Jessica, and as always, I'm joined by my favorite ghoul friend, Tara. Hey, spooksters. We have some exciting news right now, guys. Tara and <gasps> yes. I are either currently, well, we're, we're on, we're in vacation mode. Let's just put it that way. We are because this week we will be in vacation. When you're here, if you're hearing this on Monday, no. If you're listening <laughs> to this after 11 p.m. on Thursday, yes, we are both in full in vacation mode because we will officially yes, yes, be yes, together. Yes. Together. <laughs> Yay! So, <laughs> so this is going to be a little bit of a different episode. Actually, we have already released this one. Yes. For this month, because we are on vacation together right now, we chose two episodes from 2019. So they are a couple years back. OG Spooksters, y'all probably heard these, but they fit in with spooky Halloween month. So we thought, you know, we really enjoyed these two episodes that'll be coming. So we wanted to re-release them for you guys. And for newer Spooksters, probably the first time you're hearing it. I don't know. <laughs> so yay! Yay! <laughs> Either way, it's yay. They were good episodes. Yes. So we're like, yes. If you want to hang out with us on social media, you can do so by heading over to Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter and use the handle at Three Spooked Girls. We have a fantastic, fantastic Facebook group. It's called Three Spooked Girls Official. We do our book club in there. We're reading a really fun book this month that I picked because I bought it from Target and was very excited. Yes. And it was one of the options and was like, <laughs> this that one, one Ashley, because <laughs> I'm currently owning that book a bunch of people are so excited about it so i've already started reading it yes i'm gonna i downloaded it on my kindle i'm gonna read it on the plane i am ready because i guys i've seen it since i don't know probably what it came out like last year or something yeah it's a good one so you guys gotta check that out for sure definitely if you want to help support the show you can do so by heading over to patreon.com backslash three spooked girls or hit the link tree in the show notes there's a link it'll take you there for little as a dollar you get a bonus episode each month five dollars and up you get more content it's a really fun group and we we love mm-hmm. the stuff we do over on patreon it's always so much fun october is gonna be a good one we've already made plans i'm so excited oh, yeah <laughs> yes we have I'm, I'm so excited and with that we're gonna take a quick promo break bye guys <laughs> alcatraz opened in 1934 i arrived in 1935 and i'm still here I'm Charlie the Bagman Baglin. And I'm dead. Tune in every fortnight to hear about some of the nastiest inmates the rock has had. 
Learn about Alcatraz, about me and the fun I have with ghost hunters. I'm behind I'm you, Baggins. Episode 1 is about Al Capone, the banjo playing, tax dodging numpty. Join me, Charlie, from the 6th of October on Infernal Souls and Eternal Arseholes. Available on ACAST, Spotify, and most other podcast players. It's Spooktober! Yay! So excited! And we have some amazing episodes planned for you this month. But importantly, today, for this episode, we are coming at you with a little bit of our old school format. We are bringing you two Halloween true crime cases. Jessica's got one, and I've got one for you here that we're going to chat about today. So super excited. Yes, yes. So I'm going to hand it off to Jessica, and she's going to tell you about her case first, and then she'll kick it back over to me, and I'll wrap us up with mine. Yes. So we've actually talked about this case before, and I'm really excited about it. If you have been around an OG spookster, this was episode 30 when we discussed a very fun documentary called Killer Legends. Mm -hmm. If you have not watched this, I'm not going to say stop whatever you're doing and go watch it. I'm going to say finish this episode, handle your business. (laughs) When you're home tonight, sitting on your couch, looking at Netflix, what should I watch? Watch Killer Legends. It Mm -hmm. is fan-freaking-tastic. It covers like a a bunch of different ones, but it's going to talk about this one, but I'm going to do a bit more of a deep dive into it. Cool, cool. Y'all ready? Yes. We're going to talk about the man who killed Halloween. (gasps) Dun, dun, dun. That douchebag. So the man who killed Halloween, or AKA the Candyman, or as he's really known as Ronald Clark O'Brien, is the man who killed Halloween because he single-handedly created the craze of people thinking that candy is tainted. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to talk about the case. I'm going to talk about what people do now because people think Halloween candy is full of razor blades and stuff like that. And I'm going to talk about the documentary. I have a new obsession on YouTube now, so <laughs> I will talk about her because she's one of my sources. Yes, I'm excited for that one. I'm like, where has she been? <laughs> <laughs> right? Healthy snacks have a bad reputation, and let's be honest, most don't taste very good, they don't fill you up, and they certainly don't satisfy your cravings. This episode is sponsored by Monk Pack, who makes snacks that taste like our favorite sugary treats, but with one gram of sugar or less. Monk Pack Keto Granola Bars contain one gram of sugar, two to three grams of net carbs, and they're only 140 calories. They're gluten-free, grain-free, plant-based, and non-GMO, with no soy, trans fat, sugar alcohols, or high-intensity sweeteners. While they're great for anyone following a keto lifestyle, you absolutely do not have to be keto to love these. They're the perfect snack for anyone who is trying to eat better or cut back on sugar and carbs without sacrificing the taste. And literally, my favorite one is the Honey Nut Granola Bar. I love it. It tastes amazing. A lot of times with these like low sugar snacks, you can tell they're low sugar, but these, personally, I can't. No. In fact, the one that Tara just said, the Honey Nut Granola Bar, I was like oh this is super this is like sugary tasting yeah it literally tasted like a little warm hug of yummy baked goodness yes so good and i love the blueberry vanilla one it's delicious 
That's Matt's favorite. So he's obsessed. He loves it. He loves it. And y'all can try it for yourself and you'll see. We have a special deal for our listeners. Get 20% off your first purchase off any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and enter our code SPOOKEDGIRLS at checkout. And Monk Pack is so confident in their product. It's backed with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. If you don't like it for any reason, they'll exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. To get started, go to M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K dot com and select any product and enter the code SPOOKEDGIRLS at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. Monk Pack, delicious, nutritious food you can count on. We thank them for sponsoring the podcast. So Ronald and his wife, and I believe it's pronounced like Diana, and their two children, Timothy, age eight, and daughter Elizabeth, age five, lived in Deer Park, Texas, which is about 20 minutes kind of southeast of Houston, like downtown Houston. Mm -hmm. So Ronald was an optician at Texas State Optical in Sharpston, which is in Houston. He also was a deacon at the Second Baptist Church in Houston and sang in the choir and was in charge of the local Bose, the Bose drink place. That's not a real word. (laughs) and was in charge of the local bus program. I just want to say, why do these people, why are they deacons in churches? I know this is starting to become such a common theme. I don't like this. And it's Midwestern men who kill people are deacons in churches. We profile in a little bit, but I don't like this. My family who's in the Midwest, please watch your deacons. Yes, please. Okay, so here's the scenario that happens. On October 13th, 1974, Ronald took his kids trick-or-treating. He met up with a neighbor and they took their kids to the nice neighborhood in town of Pasadena, Texas. This is kind of a thing that people do. You know, you take your kids to the nicer area of town because you want the best kind of candy because you all don't want the little fun size. You want the goddamn giant Snicker bar. Am I wrong? <laughs> like, literally, this is this is fact. If someone gives a full-size candy bar away, which is mm-hmm. interesting because on the stabby for this week, I'm going to talk about someone who gives a full-size candy bar. But, you know, you go to that neighborhood. So Ronald took his kids and then the neighbor kids and they went out and they went around and they were trick-or-treating and they were getting lots of candy and they were really excited. And then they come to this house and they knock on the door and they ring the doorbell and nobody answers. And they're like, why is no one answering? Most people at this time would just assume that the people in the house have run out of candy and they need to move the hell on. So the neighbor and the four children proceed on because the kids are like, come on, dad, let's go trick or treating. Let's go get more candy because it's like what you do on Halloween. Ronald was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hang back and see if someone answers the store. So about 10 or so minutes later, Ronald meets up with the neighbor and the four kids. And they're like, he's like, look what I got. I got these giant pixie sticks. And the kids are, of course, like, oh, my God, giant pixie sticks. Because let's be honest, like, it's like the 21 inch ones with like the massive, huge ones. Mm -hmm. Like that was life as a kid. If someone gave you that, you knew you were going to be like hyper for so long. (laughs) Truth. 21 inch pixie sticks were the equivalent of kids doing drugs. Like small children. It was like, oh my God, I'm getting speed. Like, it's so crazy. So we got five of these. Yeah. He gives one to Timothy, one to Elizabeth, and two to the neighbors. And then he just has one floating around, which will come up in a little bit. So after they're done, I'm going to call him Ron. Ron takes his kids home and like all good parents do on Halloween. I don't know if you do this, Tara, but he tells his kids, you can only have one piece of candy tonight. Oh, I mean... No, 
<laughs> she can have more than one, but uh, yeah, we definitely limit it because uh, my kid's interesting. Sorry, I'm a sidebar for a second. My kid's interesting. She's like, I'm on a sidebar with you on this one because I have been <laughs> around this child and she's I love her, but she's a little weird. <laughs> she, I love her, though. She's not huge into sweets. She doesn't like juice. She's not too huge into anything like that. The only soda she will like is one that is very sugary, and this is a newer development. The only soda she likes is orange soda, and that's very, very rare. 99.999% of the time, she wants water. So when Tara was in town or when, when we were hanging out in June, we went out to dinner and I told her, you can get whatever you want to drink. And she goes, I would like water. I'm like, do you want lemonade? Like Tara had to be like, do you want <laughs> lemonade? And she's like, no. And she's like, are you sure? And I think she just gave it and was like, <laughs> like you peer pressured her into getting lemonade. She's like, sure. <laughs> like we, we went to the ice cream museum. She ate some ice cream and was like, it's too sugary. I'm like, you. You're six, right? The churro one. Yeah. She was like, this is too sugary. But she liked the fruit ones. True. She liked the fruit bar ones. <laughs> oh, yeah. All about it. Didn't want to do the dip in dots because that was Mm-mm. too much. Sh- like <laughs> when the six year old is like, I think it's too much sugar. You're like, get away from me. <laughs> but she likes chocolate. So, I mean, she does. She likes what she likes. OK, <laughs> right. But no, it's going to make it very it's going to make her a very healthy human. It's just like yes. it's so weird because you have these people like my brother's kids are mm-hmm. like, what do you want? And you're like, no, you can't have the 14th root beer or the 14th cup of Mountain Dew. Like, chill it the hell out, kid. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, we don't really have to fight about the Halloween candy with her. <laughs> She's probably like, these are my sugary ones. And these are the ones that have fruit chews. And she's the kid that's like, Mom, you like these ones. Do you want it? Okay, I have to tell on her that story. Oh. So we went. (laughs) So she had to go to the bathroom. And Tara was in BevMo. So then I took her into a different store so she could go to the bathroom. And I was like, we should get some, like, snacks. So I go, like, let's get grapes. Because grapes are great snacks for kids. They're slightly sugary. But they're, like, you know, still not straight candy. And I was like, oh, we can get a piece of candy each. (laughs) And so she picks out her favorite. Which is, I think, M&M's, right? Mm -hmm. Like peanut butter Mm -hmm. M&M's. And I get my favorite. And then what I forgot what yours was. I think it was a Twix. Uh, Reese's Cups. But it was the one that was like her favorite. Oh, which one did she pick? Yeah, for you. Oh, she picked the Kit Kat. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Oh, yeah. So she comes up and she goes, this is my mom's favorite. Now, I've known Tara a lot longer than she has. And I'm like, "Mm, no, Tara loves peanut butter cups. Like, she's like, no, these are my mom's favorites. And so we get back to our hotel room and we're sitting there. And I'm like, yeah, this is what your daughter picked out for you. And she's like, oh. And I'm like, what? She says they're your favorite. She goes, no, this is her favorite. (laughs) So she literally picked. So she outsmarted me. She picked two candies that she liked, Mm -hmm. knowing that one, her mom like liked. It was like, my mom likes this one, but it's not her favorite. I was like, I should have been like, no, your mom would want Reese's. Yes. I know your mom. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was funny. But yeah, we'll rein that back in now. (laughs) Now that I told you uh, the mini spooksters dietary habits. (laughs) Right. So Ron was like, okay, you can have one piece of candy. So Elizabeth picks her own candy, but Timothy is like, I don't know what to pick. So Ron goes, why don't you take that giant pixie stick and eat it? Which, by the way, no parent on the planet would be like, here, take this like literally like sugar that you could just snort and be like, ah, right before bed. Like no parent. Mm -hmm. So the fact that Ron was like, have this pixie stick. That's my first trigger. Like this isn't right. Right. He gives him the pixie stick. And Timothy's having trouble. He can't get it open because there's this giant freaking staple in it. And so he has to cut it open. And then it's clumpy because you know how sometimes it get clumpy because you had to like basically bang them against something and then rub them in your hands. So Ron actually 
helps Timothy eat it by basically pouring it down his throat. Mm-hmm. And then Timothy's like, hey, it tasted better. Ugh. So Ron, being the responsible adult he is, goes and gets his kid Kool-Aid, which is just basically more sugar. Right? Wash the sugar down with sugar. That's fine. Right? Immediately, Timothy is like, I don't feel good. My stomach hurts. My stomach is violently hurting. And Ron's like, are you okay? I think you're fine. Just drink some more Kool-Aid. Like, that kind of shit. And then... <laughs> Timothy, like, runs to the bathroom because he begins to vomit violently. And Ron's like, oh, no. So someone, I'm assuming the mom, calls 911 because Ron is in the bathroom and he's holding Timothy. And Timothy goes limp in his arms. And they're freaking out. So 911 is called and the ambulance comes. But unfortunately, Timothy, young boy of eight, died en route to the hospital. So he gets to the hospital and they're like, what could have caused this? And they're like, well, right before this happened, he was eating candy. And the whole place is like, oh, my God, did he get tainted candy? Where did the candy come from? What's going on? It basically epically blows up that this kid has now eaten tainted candy. And they're like, oh, my God, this is this is the work of like a sick person. Mm -hmm. What are we going to do? The police come and they start taking Ron's story like immediately because they want to get out there. And they also have to spread the word because they don't want other children to get sick. Right. Right. So they spread the word and it's getting around and it's getting around and people are like, oh, my God, this is crazy. So they take his story because they uh, they figure out that it's the the giant pixie stick. And so they're like, where did you get it? And he's like, well, they had moved on. And then I just kept knocking. And finally, this guy opened the door. I didn't see his face because he just stuck out his hairy arm. So I knew it was a man. Because he stuck out his hairy arm and I took the pixie sticks, which, okay, first and foremost, why are you taking pixie sticks from a man you can't see his face? <laughs> right? Answer this to me, Ron. So he does this and then he gives them to his kids. And so they immediately run and they go, they track down. And so the, you're probably wondering, where was that fifth pixie stick? Well, essentially a trick-or-treater came to the door and rang the doorbell and it was a guy, it was a kid that Ron recognized from picking him up on the bus for church. So he gave him the pixie stick. Mm. Think about that. Mm-hmm. Think about that. So they immediately are trying to figure it out. So they take Ron in their car and they start driving around in the neighborhood they were. And Ron can't remember where the house was, which I mean, immediately, like immediately. If this had been me, I'd have been like, it was this house. This was the address. Like, I'm, I might not know the address, but I can take you right to it because this is the house that gave me the poison pixie sticks that killed my kid. So they're basically like after a day or so, they're like, dude, like you have to give us some sort of lead because it's starting to be a bit suspicious that you can't remember this house. So he goes, you know, you know what we'll do? We'll go out one more time. And he immediately remembers where he got the fucking pixie sticks from. Of course. And so, of course, the police do exactly what they're supposed to do when they follow up on this lead. And they come up to a man, a man who owned the house. His name was Courtney Melvin. So they look up Courtney Melvin and they basically they bring him in. They arrest him at work. He worked at the Hobby Airport. They arrest him at work and they bring him in and they're like, look, you're being accused of giving out tainted candy and killing it, boy. And he's like, I wasn't even home on Halloween. And they're like, well, where were you? And he's like, I was at work where you just picked me up from. And they're like, OK, so they go and interview 200 people who work at the airport and all of them stated yeah no he was here we saw him his time card said he was there Mm -hmm. people were seeing him during the time of the murder because it's murder so they were like dude we gotta let him go essentially the police get a tip that on november 1st at nine o'clock or so in the morning ron o'brien called his life insurance company because he wanted to know 
when and how he could get his payout on his son's life insurance policy. They got this tip from family members. Jesus. So, like, (laughs) obviously this is a red fucking flag because they're like, um, (laughs) please. Because apparently Ron was really pissed off that people weren't willing to stay up at night and watch his dedication song. He wrote a, what did they say? It was like a Christian song that had to do with, um, like, his son meeting Jesus. And so he was, like, a little upset with that. But also, the other weird thing he was doing is he was talking about the life insurance payout he was receiving from his son's death, you know, at the fucking funeral, about what he was going to do with the money. And the police are like, what the fuck you doing? Right. So you know how we've talked in the past about how sociopaths never think they're going to get caught. So then they just like overconfident about everything like Chris Watts, that guy. Mm -hmm. So essentially, Ron is just telling everyone I'm going to get this money, blah, blah, blah. So they look into it and they find out that good old Ron is about $100,000 in debt. And He is basically, his car is about to get repossessed. His home was in default. Like, he was going to get it foreclosed on and all of this stuff. Also, here's the other thing. He was on the verge of getting fired from his job because he was accused of theft. When they look into his employment history, he had had 21 jobs in 10 years. That's an average of two jobs a year. Jesus. Like, I know people who move around, they're like, yeah, like, you know, every couple of years they switch jobs or something. But this is aggressive. (laughs) So they take in the fact that he has debt and the fact that he called the life insurance company like literally less than probably 12 to 15 hours after his son died to see how he could collect on his debt. So basically, they found out that in January of 1974, he had opened a policy on both of his children and it was originally for $10,000. Well, Ronald is stupid. Let's start right there. So what Ronald does is in Oct- in the beginning of October, he calls the insurance company and ups it 20000 more. Mm. So right now he has $30,000 per child. So if both children were to have passed away, he would have collected $60,000. Over half of his debt. Right. Which apparently when he was talking at the fucking funeral, he was talking about like, I'm going to pay off my car, maybe get caught up on my mortgage, and then I'm going to go on a vacation. Like at your son's funeral. He was talking about like a nice vacation. Not like, you know, I think we need to get away. I think we need to get away, like not be in the house because like, right. Essentially, their son basically died at their house, you know, so I could understand like needing to not be in that space. So the police do a little bit more digging and they come across a pair of scissors that have plastic residue stuck in them at the house. But Ron had not cut his son's thing open. He had pulled out the staple. Mm -hmm. So we talked about the fact that his son died on October 31st. Do you know what date he was arrested? November 5th. Good. They were like, are you serious? Like, Yeah, I knew it was quick. I just I couldn't remember. Right. So he was being charged with one count of capital murder. The trial began the next year in May on May 5th, 1975. Mm -hmm. And here's like the interesting thing. So apparently Dumbass Ron had a friend slash acquaintance. Like, I don't know if he wants to be considered his friend anymore, but he was a chemist. Because mind you, like Ron's an optician, So he's a doctor of sorts. So he, you know, he ran with some smart people, but he was still really stupid. I don't get that. (laughs) Book smart and common sense smart are two different things. Yeah. Book smart people shouldn't kill people. Mm -mm. I mean, people shouldn't kill people. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just saying. So 
his chemist and he starts in that summer all summer long every time they're near each other ron is bugging him about cyanide and how it is deadly Mm. oh i may have forgotten to mention that they've basically found out that the pixie stick had cyanide in it and when they gathered up all the other ones it was like the top two inches of it was cyanide so (laughs) ron so he's been asking around about cyanide he's been asking this chemist one source i I have to look. I think it was a YouTube video I was watching. He said that he was also taking some sort of like class at a junior college and was asking about cyanide. Just like really blatantly, like how much cyanide kills people? Jesus. The other thing is a local chemical company reported that a man, after they found out that it was a um, cyanide poisoning, they reported that a man in a blue like trench kind of jacket came in and was asking about cyanide and how he could purchase it and how much he could purchase and if it was a lethal dose. Mm. Maybe not the lethal dose part. I may be just embellishing, but. Yeah, I know it was like, he was just asking like how much could he buy at a time kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like that verbiage, but that's essentially what he was trying to do. He was trying to see like how much can I get away with buying at a time to get what I need. Yeah, and this like super like sketched them out and they were like, uh no zero (laughs) (laughs) they're like you have to have a license and you don't have that license get out but they told the police like hey like during the investigation like hey he this doctor they thought it was a doctor because he came in with a blue like trench coat on and that just happened to be the very uniform that ron wore to work at the texas state optical store Mm -hmm. so when they bring this store like the I think it was like the store clerk to the of this company to the trial. He was like, yeah, that's him. That's the guy. (laughs) He did it. (laughs) Right. So basically people were like he was really being really weird. I mean, everything lines up like so. But like I've lost. Okay, I want to put this way. Like I've lost parents and I should be receiving life insurance money. But like my heart is too broken to do it. If that makes sense. Well, yeah. And like my old job, I dealt with that. So, yeah, no, I totally get it. Right. I mean, I get it if it's something like, you know, you've had someone on hospice for months and, yeah. you know, and you're like, okay, well, I need to be able to pay for a funeral or something like that. And then you like that's understandable. But like right. my child just died like the night before, like, please start the process for my payout for his life insurance. Jesus. Yeah. No. During the trial, it was discovered that his wife had no idea that there was life insurance policies on the kids. Yep. There's that. Mm hmm. So. <laughs> Like I said earlier, the trial started on May 5th, 1975, and on June 3rd, 1975, after only 46 minutes of deliberation, the jury came back and made his ass guilty, or stated that his ass was guilty. Mm-hmm. And then it only took them 71 more minutes to decide whether he should get the death penalty or not, which they decided to give him. Very shortly after he was convicted, his wife divorced him. Eventually, she remarried, and her new husband adopted Elizabeth, and nothing else is known about them. Which I'm like, good. (laughs) Yeah. I hope they were able to heal as much as you can heal from this kind of thing and have a happy life as much as they can. Mm -hmm. So you're like, yay, he's been convicted. His story doesn't end there. No. So on August 8th, 1980 was the first date he was scheduled to receive his execution. It was said that people on death row, people on death row thought he was the scum of the earth mm-hmm. like how bad do you have to be that every other in death row inmate is like we collectively hate you 
Right. (laughs) Right? Like, they're like, no, we don't like you. So essentially, his attorney petitioned the court to have a stay of execution, and it was successful. So he was not executed on August 8th, 1980. Two years later, he was scheduled to be executed on May 25th, 1982. And again, his lawyer intervened and his date was postponed. Now, here comes the person I love the most in this case. (laughs) His name is Judge Michael McSpaden. On his third date, the judge is quoted saying, I will drive him to the execution myself. (laughs) Nobody is going to get this pardon. Like he was like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm. So this meant that good old Ron is going to be the first Texas inmate to be executed with lethal injection. So his date was set for March 31st, 1984. Again, his attorney tried to like, do a stay of execution. So on March 28th, his attorney said the death penalty is just too cruel and unusual amount of punishment for this crime. Motherfucker, you killed your own son with cyanide poisoning. Your son's last little bit of like life was violently vomiting and then probably feeling like his insides were melting. There's nothing enough. Like I have a personally conflicted relationship with the idea of the death penalty, like my husband and I were just talking about this because like sometimes people are innocent and they're put to death and then it comes back. But it's also like we've now sunk lo- as low as them to basically inflict death on them. And literally it's like goes back to my Christian roots. So like really the only one who can judge our soul is God. So but I will make an exception for this case. <laughs> Shortly after midnight on March 31st, 1984, He was executed by lethal injection. His last words were to maintain his innocence. And he added, like a crazy sociopath he was, I forgive all. And I do mean all those who have been involved in my death. God bless you all. And may God's best blessings be always yours. Puke. Right. Over 300 demonstrators came outside. Now, they weren't all like haters of the candy man. Which, by the way, he was dubbed the Candyman during his trial by the media because he literally killed Halloween. And I'm going to talk about that. Mm-hmm. But when he was being executed, the demonstrators who came to like be like, we hate you, like the people who showed up at Bundy's trial and yelled, fry, Teddy Fry, they were yelling, trick or treat. Mm-hmm. Also, these are why these are my favorite protesters or demonstrators. They got a little bit extra and started throwing candy at anti-death penalty (laughs) demonstrators i don't think assault is good but i was just like how funny is that like they're throwing candy Mm -hmm. so basically mr man ron the candy man the man who killed halloween how he killed halloween is it became a nationwide fear that people were poisoning slash sticking razor blades and apples putting what are those little like push pins those little like the clothes push pin thingies in candy mm-hmm. and that kids were dying yeah well, the one of the really great things that the documentary killer legends talks about is that this is one of the only cases of tainted candy that we actually have this is really a fear that's based off of this one thing here's the, here's a good thing though police stations and imaging companies will look at your kids' candy. If you go trick-or-treating with your kids and you're afraid to give them their candy, you can take them to places. Places like who have MRIs or x-rays machines, a lot of them will be willing to take pictures, like images of your kids' candy because they want them to be safe. It's also very good PR for them and I don't know why anyone wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. So 
if you are afraid of this, you can take it to your local hospitals. You can take it to your local police stations. They will look it over. Here's some easy tips on how to do it. If the candy wrapper is open when your child gets it, immediately throw it away. That's a no-brainer. Right. If the package looks weird, like it's been tampered with, like if you see holes, anything like that, do that. I mean, in the in the documentary, they interview mothers who say that they like inspect every piece of candy their kid gets. That's got to be nerve wracking. I'm not a mom. Is that something that in your life you worry about? Um, I mean, we just kind of like look through her candy, make sure none of it's been like messed with or opened. But I mean, I'm not x-raying it. You know, well, I mean, I can understand like if you live in a highly like populated area yeah. and you don't know what your kids are getting. Also, some really great things to do is to go to places like trunk or treats. They have them at churches. They have them at community centers. Yeah, we do stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah. Typically, it's a little safer and it's more of a community aspect rather than going trick or treating house to house. Like I live in an apartment. I haven't had a trick or treater in five years because nobody takes their kids trick or treating in an apartment because it's too sketchy. Yeah, exactly. Especially like up here in other states that are colder, I'm assuming it's the same. Our local hospital does essentially a trunk or treat type thing but inside. Oh nice. So we go do stuff like that. And of course like we still look through it and make sure everything's fine, but we feel comfortable. You know what I mean? But of course we make sure everything's good before she piles it in. <laughs> That's good. Yes. So Be safe on Halloween with your kids. Obviously, if anything sketchy happens, report it to the police. That's always a numero uno thing because you never know. There are sick and twisted people out there. And this case has gotten more and more attract or more and more traction over the years. So you never know if there's someone being a copycatter. But just make sure that and no homemade goods. Yes, yes. No homemade goods. Store-bought, pre-wrapped candy. And now I'm going to hand it over to Tara with her case. Of a Halloween true crime. Yes. So I have a Halloween case as well. Mine is a little different. It's going to be a missing persons case that happened on Halloween. So we are going to go from there. Okay. So mine is about Cindy Song. That is not her given name. It'll be listed in the description and in in the show notes. I did listen to it on a few of my sources, but I don't want to disrespect the victim or any family, and I know I can't get the hang of saying it correctly, so I'm just going to go with the name she went by, which is Cindy. So Cindy was born on February 25th, 1980 in South Korea and later would relocate to the United States, more specifically over to Springfield, Virginia in 1995 to live with some relatives. Once Cindy graduated high school, she attended Pennsylvania State University, so Penn State, and majored in integrative arts. She was on the path to graduate after her spring semester in 2002. She was very social, who someone who was described as very well-liked. She had a pretty solid group of friends, and she was described as doing pretty well in school and everything like that. Like I said, she was on the track to go ahead and graduate, and everyone had pretty positive things to say about her. So now we are going to discuss Halloween night, because this is when things start to go down. So Halloween night of 2001, which was a Wednesday. So for college students and probably, you know, adults, the day of the week doesn't really matter when it comes into terms of going out for a night of fun for especially Halloween. It didn't get in the way of Cindy and her friends to go have a good time. You know, they're young college kids. She was 21. So why not go to a bar? Why not go to some parties? You know, that kind of thing. So Cindy got ready and she chose a bunny costume 
Now, with this, there was actually some misinformation surrounding her actual appearance at first in articles, which, when you have a missing person, this is a problem. Originally, it was being described as a Playboy bunny costume, and if you're too young to understand what I'm saying, one, you probably shouldn't be listening to our podcast. Truth. (laughs) Kidding, kidding, kidding. But if you're not totally clear on exactly what that looks like, basically, the best example I have is go Google Elle Woods from Legally Blonde in her costume, the Halloween scene, that type of thing. There is also a TV show with Amber Heard in it that has their outfits. True, 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 true. But like I said, this was misinformation. This was not what Cindy was wearing on the night of her disappearance. She was a bunny, but she was a little bit more on the cute conservative side. So her outfit was made up of a pink sleeveless shirt with a rabbit design imprinted on the front. She had rabbit ears. She also had a white tennis skirt with a cotton bunny tail attached to the back, brown suede leather knee-high boots, and a red knee-length hooded jacket. So basically, just a cute outfit and some ears. Oh, I was also going to say you could uh, Mean Girls. Oh, Mean Girls. Yeah. Another good example. There you go. So as far as the timeline from when she was last seen, it's pretty typical for a night out, especially on Halloween. So after getting ready, uh, they went to a Halloween party at a bar called the Players Nightclub on the 100 block of West College Avenue. And they stayed there till about 2 a.m., which is, you know, like I said, pretty typical for bar closing, depending on the area. A lot of bars do close around 2 or start to wind down around then. And then the group went over to one of their apartments to hang out for a few more hours to put it at about 4 a.m. when Cindy would leave from there with one of her friends named Stacy to go home. Cindy's apartment is located at the State College Park Apartments in the 300 block of West Clinton Avenue, which was said to be kind of further than where most students lived since it wasn't near downtown. It was actually said to be a more quiet area. There really wasn't a whole lot around, like nothing to hustle and bustle. It was more of a residential area along with like some food places, uh, maybe a shopping center or two, and then like a couple motels kind of thing. Nothing crazy or sketchy or anything like that. Just a little more quiet part of town, basically. So the thing is, the friend who dropped Cindy off didn't physically go in with her to go home or anything. But like, this isn't me putting shame on her. It's just a point to take note of. So it's confirmed she made it to the building and went in, but then after that, we can't 100% say she went into her apartment, but we do have the fact that the police would later find a pair of false lashes in her apartment that they suggested she had worn that night, and they were on her bathroom counter, so anyone who wears falsies, you know, after a long day of wearing falsies, you want to rip those bitches off as soon as you get home. Yes, you do. (laughs) (laughs) So this makes total sense. So after this, there was no sign of force entry. The door was actually locked, and this was confirmed by her roommate, who returned later after being out of town. She was visiting family or something like that. She came back, I believe, on the 2nd or 3rd-ish of November. But basically, at this point, it's believed that Cindy went over to the 24-hour market. There was a nearby grocery store named Giant, which... If you're from Pennsylvania or that area, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you're not, basically, it's just a 24-hour grocery store. So like a Safeway, that kind of thing. 
Her friend said it was pretty normal for her to take a trip out even in the middle of the night, early in the morning, what have you, because it was a super short walk. It would take maybe six minutes from her apartment to get over there. And I watched a YouTube video that I'll have in the sources page that actually pulls up, the girl pulls up the Google Maps of the route. And it's pretty much a straight shot from Cindy's apartment over to the shopping center where this grocery store is. And she lived essentially, her complex was in like kind of a dead end of the road. So basically, she just had to like walk down the road and then cross a main intersection. And then she was there to the shopping center. They think maybe she left after taking the falsies off to go grab something to eat or maybe a snack or something like that since it was so late. You know, most people don't want to cook at four in the morning. It's noted that none of them, including her, was like super intoxicated. So she wasn't like drunk, drunk or anything like that. No drug use, anything like that. But still like for lunch some days, I don't even want to make anything. So I totally get it. So anyways, we assume that she grabbed her wallet and keys since these items were never found. And then she went off on foot because she didn't have a car. Something that would be found in the apartment later would be her cell phone. Now, in current times, this would be like a huge, huge red flag. But keep in mind, this is 2001. At best, for our little baby spooksters out there, the most high-tech phone at that time was probably, what, a BlackBerry, Mm -hmm. if that? (laughs) But she didn't have anything like that. She pretty much had, like, what most of us little bit older peeps started out with, that, you know, brick phone. (laughs) You really couldn't do much with it. So she had left it. It was noted in an article, like I think one or two articles, her friends were like, well, that is kind of weird that she would leave it. She always took her phone with her, et cetera, et cetera. But if you think about it, it's kind of like, well, it was after 4 a.m. Like we don't know the time she left. So it could have been later, closer to five. She had just been with her friends all night. Probably didn't feel the need to call anybody because social media didn't exist. So it's not too far fetched for her if she possibly left her phone. Also, later, when they check, like, the phone records and everything, she she hadn't made any calls before she left. Nothing. Like, it had been off the whole time, too. So the battery may have even been dead kind of thing. But, like I said, when her friends did mention, like, well, that is weird. She wouldn't take it. The cops were like, well, maybe someone kind of watched her walk in and then followed her in. But, like I said, there was no signs of forced entry. Nothing off with the apartment that set off The roommate, when she came home, Cindy was obviously already missing, but nobody knew at this point. She was just kind of like, okay, Cindy's like at class, work, whatever, you know, she's just not here because the door was locked and everything. So she didn't think anything of it. And it would actually be a couple days after that, that Cindy would be reported missing. It wouldn't be until November 4th that her friends became worried. No one could get a hold of her and she hadn't shown up to any of her classes. And this was very unusual because she was very responsible. She was always in touch with her friends. Like I said, she was very social, everything. So it had been basically three or four days. They were like, okay, we need to tell somebody. We don't know where the hell she is. So they put in the missing persons report with the cops. And her parents came right away. As soon as they found out that she was possibly missing, they flew in from South Korea. And while they started the search, something kind of weird. And if anyone has any input on this, I would love to hear it. But essentially, the only way I can describe what they did was they started stress cleaning. They cleaned her apartment. They cleaned everything up. They cleaned up her room. They cleaned up like the common areas, all of that. Like, it was really odd. The thing is, to be fair, though, her apartment was never dubbed a crime scene. But still, it's still a little bit weird. You would think maybe, like, maybe I shouldn't touch anything just in case there's anything for the police to find. But of course, you know, it could also be a cultural difference type of thing. 
it could be something like that as well. I'm not sure. If anyone has any insight on that, feel free to drop some comments. So the school was actually great during this for the family. They actually provided accommodations for them. So that was really nice. So they were very helpful during this whole thing while they were trying to find Cindy. So, you know, because they obviously didn't have to do that. At this point, and this will become a theme, the police had very little to go off of. It looked like Cindy had just disappeared without any trace whatsoever. Her family and close friends end up all being cleared. They find her diary, and she had noted that she started experimenting with some drug use. Oh. Yeah. How would you write that in your diary? I mean, she's writing to herself, so. Dear diary, I got high today. I mean, essentially, yeah, because she had experimented with marijuana and ecstasy, but her friends had her back. They would come up and just be like, no, it's not. She doesn't have a drug problem. It's not anything like that. We're college kids. She was just trying it out. It's not a regular thing. But the drug thing comes into play later. Things tie in. Things tie in. So after this, they hypothesized that maybe she ran away or maybe something in her life had affected her and her mental health because at this point, they're like, maybe she ran away and killed herself. We don't know. She had just went through a breakup about, I believe, a month or two prior to this. But again, her friends were like, no, she was very happy, actually. The breakup didn't really affect her too much. and. She was actually taking care of herself as far as her mental health goes. She had a therapist she went and saw regularly, so she was pretty in touch with taking care of herself, which I will give major kudos to her on that because in this time, I feel like that wasn't a very common thing to be in touch with. No. Also, as far as like, you know, just up and splitting, she had some stuff around the apartment that showed no, she wasn't planning on going anywhere. She had two Britney Spears concert tickets for about a week or so later, and then also a receipt for a computer to be delivered on, I believe it was November 6th, so shortly after Halloween. So she had signs that she wasn't really planning on going anywhere. It'd be days without any tips at all, and then one would come in from a woman who was in Philadelphia. And for those who don't know geography of this area, I did not, and I know Jessica does not, That's about 200 miles away from where Cindy lived, and she had some information. She said that she saw someone in a car matching Cindy's description, and the young lady seemed like she was under distress and she was yelling for help. She did try to intervene, but then some unidentified male, who we still have no idea even today who this person is, basically told her to back the fuck off and mind her business. And she said it was very intimidating. So she was like, okay, okay, never mind. Like, I'm not going to do anything to put myself in immediate danger. But instantly after this happened, she called the police. So at least she did that. But the only description she really had that she could give was that he had olive toned skin and medium length hair, which in the sketch, it's kind of like just like shaggy hair. It's not really what I would consider medium length, personally. Eventually, this tip would turn into a dud just because the woman kind of started changing some of the details. So they don't know if this actually happened or if the lady was just trying to seek attention or what. But they were like, "Okay, this is unreliable. Like, we have nothing to go off of. She keeps changing her shit. So let's cut the cord on that. And then after that, no more tips for about a year. And at this time, so in 2002 now, there would actually be an episode on this case on Unsolved Mysteries. Sadly, I went to Hulu because I had the time to watch it and everything, and it looks like Unsolved Mysteries is gone from Hulu. What? 
I'm pretty fucking mad. Unless my phone was just being stupid. But if it's gone, I'm pretty fucking mad. I'm looking right now. Okay. No, it's like an unsolved mystery. The Real Lives of Atlanta episode. Yeah. So, yeah, for some reason, it's gone. So if someone who works at Hulu is listening to this, please bring it back. I wasn't done yet. I wasn't done yet. It's just like (laughs) the other day when I went to watch Dinosaurs and they were like, this is content is unavailable. I was like, where the fuck did it go? Right? I even went so far, guys, to find out what episode this was. So if you have a way to watch Unsolved Mysteries, I went down the Reddit rabbit hole to find out for you. It is supposedly, I couldn't confirm because I couldn't find it, of course. Someone said it is roughly season 12, episode 7, in case you want to watch that. But if you check the sources, I have a couple good YouTube videos too. Two different channels. Both ladies did really good jobs on this case. So from here, there would be another time gap before any tips came through. Like I said, the information on this case is limited as shit. Really frustrating. So this time, we're going to jump to June 5th, 2003. So the newest information would come from a man named Paul Weekly. Now, he's not a stand-up citizen himself. He's a criminal. Spoiler. And essentially began to work as an informant. Paul had said that two men, Hugo Selinsky and Michael Krakowski, were to blame for the disappearance of Cindy. Now, I have a little bit of a background before I get into what that's about and what happened with that. Selinsky is basically a career criminal. He was a bank robber and he started getting in trouble with the law around 15. And now in like current day, he's about in his 40s or so. That put him in like his early 20s at the time Cindy disappeared. Apparently even escaped jail at one point. And more that I'm going to get into, so I'm not going to spoil the rest. And Krakowski was a pharmacist. So you think, okay, all right, all right. But... Here's your kicker. He also ran an illegal drug ring. I mean, it's easy when you are a pharmacist. Mm -hmm, Exactly. So according to Paul's story, he said the two men saw Cindy and mistook her for a prostitute and took her back to Stalinsky's house. And that's where she was trapped in a vault. And during which time she was assaulted countless times over the course of a few days and left to die. Wait, wait. So they saw a prostitute and thought, Oh, you know what I'll do to a prostitute? I'll rape her and then leave her to die. Yeah. Okay. I mean, if you think about it, it's that toxic mentality of prostitutes have nobody that gives a shit about them, so they're an easy target. Okay. So with someone like this, the cops obviously had to play it smart. He's a career criminal, of course. Let me also mention a fun fact that Kurkowski was MIA at this point. The cops figured that he might have caught wind of some of this of what was going on and may have skipped town because his girlfriend was also MIA. So the police headed over to Selinsky's house and ended up arresting him on an assault charge of Kurkowski's father, Michael Sr. Now, this is where stuff kind of gets a little intertwined, but it's okay. It's a little confusing. So basically, Junior, I'm going to use the last name, and the dad, I'm just going to call him Michael, if that makes sense Okay, for the sake of things. Okay, cool. Or Michael Sr., whichever comes out of my mouth, you know. Okay, so there is theories that basically Kurkowski, who is, of course, leading the drug ring, was working with Stalinsky, and he was the one selling the drugs or in charge of the operation with him, that kind of thing. And then Michael 
Sr. was essentially the middleman between the two guys and then got caught in some kind of crossfire with some kind of business disagreement, quote, quote. And that's when he got the shit beat out of him by Selensky for the assault charge to come up. So pretty plausible with this kind of thing. So once they arrested Selensky for the assault charge, this was their opportunity to do a search on the house. And uh, holy fucking shit, um, they weren't ready. I wasn't ready. You're not going to be ready at what the fuck they found. So they found the charred remains of what appeared to be five bodies. What? Mm-hmm. I was not ready. Oh, you're still not ready. Oh, God. And then this started a, oh, my God, frenzy and a deeper dive into the property. The police in total would find 12 bodies in his backyard. Oh, my God. 12. 12. Among those 12, two of them would belong to Kurkowski and his girlfriend, Tammy Fassett. Oh, my God. Who you remember, the police thought, we're just out in the run. Nope, they're dead. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cindy's remains were not there. Aw. But 12 bodies. Yes. 12 fucking bodies. Interestingly enough, though, Paul later admits to assisting with the murders of Kurkowski and Tammy. He said that they had been murdered because Zelensky was unhappy with Kurkowski when he decided to take Cindy's headband as a keepsake for himself after they killed her and got rid of her body. Also, he claimed there was a stash of about $60,000 that Zelensky didn't know about. So since Paul told him about it, he was going to get a cut. So money motivator to be a good little lapdog, I guess. Got it. Mm -hmm. So, of course, after this, the cops kind of were like, let's focus on Paul here. Let's focus on our buddy Paul, because what the fuck is his deal? Everything he has said to us has been backed up by evidence. Except the shit about Cindy. Hmm. So this is when they started to think maybe he made all the Cindy stuff up because Cindy's body obviously wasn't with the rest. Why would Selinsky take the time to put her body somewhere else, go against his obvious MO because he would be considered a serial killer? Spoiler for y'all. Not saying it's not a possibility, But if the man was already burying bodies in his backyard, including two who, if this actually happened in this timeline, would have died after Cindy, it just doesn't make much sense. So there's so many questions for everybody at this point. There ended up being no physical evidence, of course, no body, no nothing to link Zelensky or even Paul to Cindy. They actually ended up going to court for other crimes they had committed, of course, their murders and things like that. The investigators are still not convinced that Selinsky doesn't have some involvement, though. Even to this day, they're still trying to figure out what their connection is because they think something is there. So they're not sure, though. But both of those guys are actually both serving life sentences for everything else they fucking did. So they're in jail. But sadly, even after almost 18 years later this month, Cindy's disappearance is still a mystery. There hasn't been any new information or developments on where she has went. Other people have theorized over the years maybe she wasn't murdered. Maybe she was a victim of human trafficking. This is actually a huge possibility if you think about it. The area where she lived in, there was some motels. And I was reading comments in Reddit, which I know it's like Reddit, you take it with a grain of salt. But it just kind of adds to if you're thinking about this theory. There's a lot of motels in this area. And with human trafficking, 
they want to be able to snatch people up. And then, you know, they go to these like little like motels and stuff. They could just put the girls there and then move them to where wherever they're fucking going easily for themselves. While this wasn't a rough neighborhood, it was near a college town. And maybe someone thought that was an easy way to sweep somebody up because it was Halloween night. A lot of people are out. A lot of people are out drinking. So their guards are down. So they're easier to coax or trick into getting them where they want. So because there's no body and things like that, it's something that could very well happen. It's hard to track that kind of stuff, but it's definitely a theory, I think, that shouldn't be counted out with her. And, you know, also the fact that it would have been hard for her, sadly, either way to fight anybody off. She was really tiny. She was like maybe 110 pounds. So she was a very petite little girl. So I'm not really sure. And it's just really sad because, you know, her family still hasn't got closure. This is still an active case. So on everything, they still have that. If there's any way, like it's probably unlikely, but if there's anybody listening that has any kind of information whatsoever on this, they still take tips. They still have people you can talk to over at the Ferguson Township Police. And I grabbed that phone number. It is 814-237-1172. And That is who you want to reach for that. They are handling this case. These missing person cases just make me so sad because, you know, there's just so many unanswered questions. And this is almost 20 years old. Like, it's crazy. It takes someone either like going back and looking at the case Mm -hmm. or someone just finally coming forward and being like, this is what happened. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there's always the thing of... They kept concentrating and concentrating on Selinsky and stuff and things like that. They could have missed a different suspect because they were so concentrated on him. Yes, he's a bad person and they're bad people. But does that necessarily mean that they did something to her? I guess for me, it just it's like one of those things where like when you started talking about it and then the disappearance and I was thinking like my first thought was sex trafficking, like. That would be really easy. A young woman at night by herself being petite, Mm -hmm. being of Asian descent. Not that that's we hear all the time about women like I live near an international airport and there's a big sex trafficking crime ring in this area. And it's all of these like young girls coming from like North or South Korea. And they are told that they're going to come over here and they're going to live a good life. And they get sucked into like massage parlor deals where they like basically like are stuck and they like, yeah, they're basically like an indentured servant and they have to like pay their freedom from this guy who paid for them to come over here. Thank God the Sacramento Police Department does a fantastic job of busting these rings and does it quite often. Mm -hmm. But the sad truth is, is that once one person's removed, another one steps in and they just open someplace else. I mean, my husband and I were driving down the street the other day. It was a it was Sunday night at like 930 and we're driving and we're like, open massage parlor, open massage parlor, open. It's like not all of these just left their open signs on. Like it's almost kind of like you hope that what he said happened where her suffering was ended sooner than later, because that can't be a life that you'd want. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's no matter what, everything is just terrible. And you have to feel for that family because they're going on almost two decades of no answers. Right. It's got to be hard. I wouldn't be able to imagine. Like, yeah, it's it's incredible. The lengths bad people go to to do horrible things. 
Yeah. Okay, Spooksters, we really hope you enjoyed that OG episode. Thank you so much for supporting us. We are probably having a blast right now while you guys are listening to this. We will be back next week with another episode. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.